best plan in the world is worth zero if you can't execute it. And that's what asset management is all about. Have you ever wondered what a large real estate investment company actually does? What does their day look like? What departments do they have as a company? And what key pieces make up the larger, ever-growing, full-time investment business? Today, we are going to get an insider's perspective on how a real estate investment company is set up, how it runs, the different departments, and the different strategies that we use. What's up, guys? For those that are new, I am Nick D'Angelo with Saint investment group. We currently have 150 million assets under management today and we are raising another 100 million currently. I make these videos because investing is the ultimate way to personal freedom and I want you to have access to this information. To start off, let's define exactly what a real estate investment company actually does. First, they identify an opportunity and a strategy for that opportunity that would bring high returns or would offer the investor something special and unique in the marketplace. Next, they market to investors. They explain what the game plan is, what their strategy is, and they raise money from those investors that do believe in what they're doing and the game plan they're moving forward with. Third, the real estate investment group purchases the asset executes the game plan and delivers that value to the investors. The investment fund or the firm or the investment group makes a small sliver of that depending either on the front side or the back side of the deal and that's how they keep their doors open as well. Now, with these steps, a real estate investment fund does this rinse and repeat over and over ad infinitum. That means forever, 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 they're going through the same exact process. Now, pieces of this will change, whether it's the assets themselves, uh, different markets, surely the team is going to evolve and change over time. But these are the main pieces and this is the main process that every single investment group, fund, firm, REIT, etc. goes through. Now, for the company itself, this is what we're going to be talking about today. Now, what is a real estate fund, firm, REIT, syndication? What exactly is it made up of? What makes up the team behind the investment? That's what we're going to be focusing on today. And there are three pillars to this as well. The first is asset management and fund management. The second is acquisitions. It's locating and actually acquiring the assets. The third is capital raising. It's bringing the money into the fold to invest and get the returns and start and continue that entire process. Let's jump in to item number one, which is asset management slash fund management. This is the best place to start because this is the literal backbone of the entire operation. If you wanna think about anatomy, this holds everything else up. It being healthy, make sure that everything has the support it needs for the body, AKA the real estate investment firm or company, et cetera, to perform at its optimal levels. Skill-wise, the asset management side of the business primarily has more of COO skills, okay? It's gonna have things like operations, accounting, management, property management understanding, and maybe even some experience, compliance, legal, collections, AKA accounts receivable, systems for everything top to bottom to make sure the trains are running on time, and top-level strategy and execution. As you can see, asset management really is the glue that holds everything 
everything together. And without this piece, what happens is you just have isolated pieces that are really more of niche operations rather than a whole real estate investment business on its own. Now, how do you know that asset management is doing what it's supposed to? What does a good job look like? Above all else, asset management's job is to execute the strategy that they have come up with. This means that staying to track, staying on deadlines, staying on timelines, because time is money, and when you have a fund that is variable, some funds range from, for instance, we have a one-year lockup period. That's very short, so that means we need to hit the ground running quickly. Other funds have maybe a five or 10-year lockup period. So what that means is that game plan is a longer-term strategy, but it's a lot less flexible for the investor, but it's also a lot less flexible for the asset manager. That means they need to nail it down from the beginning because a 10-year game plan, if you mess up for a period of time, that pushes those timelines further and further back. So that means you gotta jump on it immediately. Also, when you're fighting market conditions, AKA markets are always gonna go up and down, jumping on this quickly allows you to get ahead of the market and see any changes that may be coming because you have boots on the ground in your operations and they have ears very close to the street of what's going on in their properties, local markets. Asset management will also be the oversight of the actual property managers. The property managers, as you know, if you wanna think of hierarchy all the way from tenant to cash investor slash owner, you have the tenant, you have the property manager, you have the asset manager, and then you have the investor and the top line management, okay? So from that tenant, they interface directly with property management. That means property management collects all of those calls and interfaces and discussions. So for things like a multifamily building, that will be a lot of discussion, right? For an office building, a good amount of discussion. Self-storage, tons of tons and tons of discussions. For things like single tenant industrial, there might be less communication from the 350,000 square foot tenant and the property manager, but those communications are very high level and they are very, uh, I don't wanna say risky, but there's a lot more on the line. If somebody's leasing a $2,000 a month apartment, right, and you have 100 of those tenants, you can lose one and kind of mismanage that a little bit. If you miss something like Amazon in your warehouse, you're gonna have big problems if you mismanage that. There's going to likely be a lot of repercussions for handling that poorly. So property management is very important. Them performing the way they're supposed to is very important. And asset management has oversight above that and is always checking their work and making sure they're on the big tasks as well. Great asset management is also all over collections. If something is running behind, they know about it and they have a game plan of how to get that money back and get those collections moving or an eviction, God forbid. And they are all over making sure they're pushing the top line at all times to make sure that investment is performing at the best of its ability. This also includes when you're looking at financial statements. This is the asset manager's job. That is the literal script of what they're doing. It tells the whole story. So expenses are the next item in there. Asset management must make positive to manage expectations with expenses. That means they are always trying to find ways to sharpen the pencil on this. And that means they know very good market rates for things like electricity, for water, et cetera, for the number of tenants or the size of the building so that they know if they're being way overbilled, if there's a sneaky underground leak under the property that they don't know about where the water bill is going crazy, if someone's siphoning power, electricity, water, et cetera, all those things a good asset manager will know just by looking at the numbers and understanding the market rates in the area. They're also getting competitive bids to keep pricing down. They're not just giving it to the craziest, highest price, assuming value from that. And most importantly, just as a 
condensed version of all of that, it's that systems are tight, right? Things are airtight. There's no holes in the bucket where you're gonna wake up and just say, who missed this super important piece? It is keeping the trains running on time at all times is the number one goal of asset management during their execution of the strategies. Now, in our long experience in real estate, we have combined experience of, I think it was over 60 years for our top management team. So in our long experience of real estate, we've seen a lot of bad asset management, terrible, horrible things. Let me share a list of our pains from the past so that you know what doing this job poorly looks like. The first is just simply incorrect numbers. When you're looking at the financials, you going executive above the asset management, looking at this going, these can't be accurate because this, or you know the numbers on your own just from managing it many years, you can look and say, what the heck is this? What are you talking about? How is this accurate? When you find out that your asset management is not managing accounting appropriately, and you as the C-level executive cannot even get accurate numbers, this is the number one sign that there is a major issue. This is quality control completely off the rails. And if you're the top executive in the company, it's your role to get this fixed. What it tells you is that your asset management is having major problems. Also in that vein of managing the numbers, delinquencies, accounts receivable, late rents. If you start seeing things on your aging slash delinquency reports that are 30, 60, 90 days late, what that tells you is that your asset management is not pounding the phones to get the work done that they're supposed to do to run this tightly. So the next thing that happens when things are off track is you get into meetings with your asset managers, the people that are on the boots on the ground making sure the performance is happening, and you ask them what's up. What's up with the tasking? What's up with the numbers? Why is this off? Why is that off? The answer you get is the next big indicator of where they are at. If they're straight up with you and say, look, I just had a kid. I have a family member in the hospital. I Something major happened. The accounting department just moved offices and blah, 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 blah. The head accountant wasn't it. Whatever it is, if they can at least be straight up with you on what's going on and say, we messed up. This is the reason and we're going to fix it. Okay, great. The number one thing that we've seen that's the red flag is them straight up lying or the excuses are there and not the results are there, right? So while they could give solutions in the past of how they're going to fix it, it's them not doing it or whether they know or if they won't even admit that there's a real issue and that you shouldn't be upset about that, that's a huge red flag. If they don't respect the accounting and the numbers, asset management's having problems. A few other key examples, bad strategic execution or even strategy altogether. It's very difficult to squeeze out the performance that you need to for your investors if your asset managers don't see the big picture or they don't even really understand the strategy. Timelines regularly getting kicked back is a really bad sign. It means that they're not accurate either on their prediction of when they can get things done or they don't really understand the processes involved. Both are kind of like newbie issues to be having in asset management. Not reviewing accounting regularly for strategic improvement areas. It means that they're kind of being lazy with the numbers and not trying to push performance. And then poor communication. If you can't get the details of what's going on or you can't get clear stories of what's going on, that's a big problem from the asset management side. That said, asset management again is the backbone. It will make or break all of your deals. The best plan in the world is worth zero if you can't execute it. And that's what asset management is all about. Sadly, asset management is also often considered kind of like the least sexy of the departments because it doesn't really have a whole lot of marketing and sales involved. It's much more on the operations side. This is a major, major, major miss by the real estate industry and the investment industry. Asset management is an absolute gem that you must have and it, it, the core pillar is the central pillar. And if you don't have it, your deals will fail. All right, the next pillar is acquisitions. This is sourcing deals, finding deals, 
analyzing deals and purchasing deals, bringing that amazing deal to a safe landing on the runway. Great Acquisitions knows when to push in negotiations on a purchase, when to fold, you know, say completely no to the deal, or when to find something in between and say, hey, we'll give you that if you give us this. Navigating this purchase process is an absolute must for your acquisitions team or for a team that you're investing in because many things come up in escrows. Problem resolution and negotiation where it's a win-win is something that is very easily glossed over. Somebody that finds the best deals but can't work through the biggest problems is not as valuable. They must navigate escrow and be the leader of that process to make sure it gets for a safe landing. And really, part of the job is sorting through efficiently hundreds of deals at a time. You have infinite investment options in the real estate space. There are always deals. I don't ever want to hear anybody say that there are no deals. The problem is always too many deals. Now, there might not be a lot of great deals. I would agree with that statement. But part of acquisitions and part of that department is that they must be going through consistently hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of deals to find the absolute gems, the diamonds that when you polish them, they have the best return for everybody and everybody can be very successful. They must do this with their analysis, their numbers, and their strategy included on each submittal for a deal. You can't run things by, I think this is good, the broker said this, etc. You must have a systemized, on-track, same acquisition review process every time. All right, so what does acquisitions look like when it's not doing a good job? The simplest answer is you're paying above market for market deals. If you're finding these deals on CoStar or you're finding them on LoopNet or you're finding them on any other listing service and they've already been shopped by all the other buyers and they're still up there, then there is a problem most likely, okay? Your acquisitions team, the purpose of them is to be finding the best opportunity. So if they're not bringing you things that are off market, that is a huge issue. Also a bad sign is if they are getting getting hammered in negotiations or during the escrow process. They are the ones who are supposed to be bringing this whole deal together and making sure that things go smoothly all the way to close. Also, one of the things that you see commonly that has huge implications for being a poor acquisitions director or being bad at that role is not having good network. Just not having that network developed. Sometimes it's not enough years in the seat, not enough years in the industry in that role, so people don't know you as that acquisitions individual. But this has impacts on things, everything from pricing to early information on deals. I can't tell you how many times us having a good relationship on the acquisition side with the broker that has the deal, how many times that has landed a successful transaction from across the board, whether it's bad news that you get from the broker where he says, look, you know, between you and I, there's a huge, you know, bunch of issues here. Sometimes that can actually give the seller confidence with you knowing that because you put in your offer, even if it's a little bit lower with firm confidence saying, hey, look, I know there's some hair on this deal. I know there's some issues coming up, but we know about them. We will make this offer with the knowledge of those. So that's like a big actual sigh of relief for the seller. Whew. All the worst things are already come to light. So now I know that their offer's serious. Some sellers, you know, that aren't good sellers might still shop you or if they have a lot of time and they just want to squeeze out the best price, but it's worked to our advantage many times as the buyer. Others are commission-based, oh my gosh. Can you imagine a worse structure? If you're the C-level executive of a fund or a syndication, et cetera, can you imagine a worse syndication model than having your acquisitions director being paid commissions on acquisitions? I see this over and over, but think about the bias that the individual is having. You're giving them 
the bias. You're training the bias by saying, look, the more deals you close, the more money you make, right? But that is not what we're here for. We're here for quality deals, not quantity deals. So if you're going to build in a commission structure or a performance bonus structure, make sure it's based on the performance of the assets they choose so that they spend a little time making sure it's the right asset and not just filling the need of something getting purchased. And just to illustrate this point that the acquisitions director or acquisition team needs to be pushing more off market and needs to be looking for things that aren't just on CoStar or LoopNet, here are some numbers that illustrate this perfectly. Over the last 30 years, multifamily real estate, and I'm gonna pick on multifamily because it's very common in many of the entry level or earlier funds. Multifamily real estate has generated on average for the last 30 years, 15.7% per year. Those are great numbers. Those are very exciting numbers for many investors, when, especially when you think about all the other advantages that come along with that, especially, especially when you think of that passively. Now, think about that number and then think about the standard fund model. The standard fund model is five to 10 years holding that capital, the investor capital, and squeezing out those returns and timing it for the best time to sell those assets or asset, right? So if that's the case, the average fund probably quotes in the multifamily space, especially the you know more entry-level funds, about 12 to 16% is very commonly quoted. Hmm, but think about that. If the average return is 15.7 and the average fund quotes 12 to 16%, then those that are quoting around the 16% mark, wow, they're quoting more than the average return an investor would get if they went and bought it themselves. The lower end, that 12% number, that's actually just showing in exactly probably around what the fund would make and then paying a market return out to the investors. So there's actually a big difference there between some funds on the 16 or higher percent return and then that 12% because the 16 and higher percent return, you actually as an investor, if you think about it this way, you actually as an investor are better off investing in a fund and doing little to no work and making higher returns in those sophisticated funds than going for a 12% fund that's still gonna hold your money for five to 10 years and you're actually making below market, right? But what those high-end, high-quality funds have in common is that they have good acquisitions, okay? Because if you can beat the market, AKA uh, you know, investor one, that first investor is gonna get 15.7%, but the fund would get them 16 or higher percent, that investor would be crazy not to give all that money to the fund and make more money for a passive investment, right? That 15.7%, if they went and purchased the property, comes with a wide variety of management, AKA all the asset management we just went through. That's managing a team, building a team, managing property management, boosting returns, trying to find the strategies involved that many take decades to really fully understand, et cetera, et cetera. If you can make more money passively, how could you not take that? And that starts with acquisitions, getting off market, above market returns, because you're paying below market pricing. The implications of this are huge. Over and over and over and over, I have mentors that are fantastic acquisitions guys, and that has been a huge blessing in my career to learn from some of the best. What they say again and again as a cornerstone of their business is that the money is made on the buy. I showed you an illustrated example previously. I cannot overemphasize how important acquisitions are. 
Now I gave you an example of what funds would look like being great at acquisitions or being above average at acquisitions where they can offer great returns to investors that are oftentimes better than the investor would get on their own purchasing the property. Let me give you an example and I don't wanna bag on Grant Cardone. Truthfully, I have so much respect for Grant Cardone. I think he revolutionized investment real estate in a major way but I'm gonna dig into his model a little bit from an, as an industry veteran who's been around a long time about Grant who has scaled to atmospheric levels, right? Grant is incredibly successful, but I've always been interested in his numbers, okay? Grant's numbers are actually not competitive in the marketplace in many ways from the deals that I've seen. Haven't seen them all. There might be amazing deals out there that I'm not privy to or invite only, et cetera, et cetera, for only his top, top, top investors. The ones I've seen have not been the most competitive. Now on one side, you can be really negative and just say, oh, you know, Grant's just burning investors or Grant doesn't know how to do acquisitions at a high level or blah, 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 blah. I don't agree with that. What I agree with and what I think is not that Grant's not sophisticated or doesn't know acquisitions. I believe that what Grant's doing is he's using his strengths to offset some things in his company that might be a little less strong, okay? That doesn't mean he has a bad company, it means that he's playing to his strengths in a very strong way. Grant, with the history of building sales teams and being an effective salesman himself, has clearly set a whole new high-end benchmark of raising capital, okay? So just like I have many mentors that hammer on the phrase, the money is made on the buy side, I also have mentors on the other side of the fence that have a different opinion with equal success in real estate, with equal years in the business. And this is the other quote, is the money in the deal or is the money in the money? Now think about that, right? We're transitioning into part three of the three pillars of a successful real estate investment company. So I'm transitioning with an example from one side of the coin to the other. Now, if some people hold the opinion that the money's not in the deal, the money's in the money, what does that mean? That means the value in many cases can be from a world-class capital raising perspective, can bring value to the investor and to the investment group by raising a lot of money and not that they're the best acquisition people in the world, but because they're doing such high-end purchases, right? Properties that other groups can't afford, that they're purchasing things that have naturally higher returns because the air is thinner. There's not as many groups that can compete for the same sale if the numbers are so high. Now again, to return to Grant Cardone as an example, he buys pristine class A hundreds of units. There's only several bidders on any of these deals. So I don't know his exact returns, gross returns, but what I can tell you is I'm positive that Grant's capital raising ability gets him access to returns that many other investors wouldn't have because he's able to buy deals that are just bigger by default. So I hope that makes sense. We're gonna go more into detail on that in the next section as well. Just to wrap up on the acquisition side, here's a couple notes that I think are worth making. As a recap, if acquisition strength is missing, you will have lower returns, less competition in the market, and less ability to acquire as needed for your fund or your syndication. You may have to pay higher fees along the way, broker's fees, double commissions, finder's fees, etc. And all in all, it might be an extreme example, but there's times that certain funds are just priced out of the market. Why? Because their fund model and what they promise to investors and their structure literally just does not work in some markets if they don't have access to product 
in assets that meet that criteria. Now success as an acquisition model, this is what it looks like. Can extremely boost the returns of the fund. It can make a huge amount of value for the investors and they can have access to things that no one else would. The acquisition person is not just evaluating markets that they have the best connections in, but is also sniping out markets with data analysis, economic analysis, trends of movement and business growth, trends of income growth and household growth, and using all the major metrics to understand which markets are doing great and which should be thriving in the future. And with these systems in place, you can move faster on your acquisition side because it's the same routine every time. So that gives you the ability to move faster than these other groups that may have slow purchase systems in place, which gives you an advantage for any broker you deal with. Part three of the three pillars of a successful real estate investment company. Part three is capital raising. If you wanna think of the analogy of the body, capital raising is the blood. It's the lifeblood of the entire company. You must have capital flowing in and out of the company, into deals, out of deals, back to investors, into the investment company to make sure that bills are getting paid, everybody's happy and motivated to continue their success. And overall, having that money circulate means health of the investment group overall. It means things are working well. What skills do you need for successful capital raising? Overall, this is gonna be more of a sales and marketing approach, mostly on the sales side and the sales systems, because this will deal a lot with investor relations and a full, essentially a full funnel. On the sales side, you have to have your full sales processes set up, a full sales funnel. You need to have people on the phones that are able to answer questions, provide great information, and help investors through that sales process. From a C-level executive, it's gonna take scaling your team, training your team, systemizing your sales team. On the marketing side, it's to bring people in the top of the funnel, to bring them in with the knowledge and the interest and in qualifying the leads beforehand to make sure that when they do call you or you do get in touch, that you're the right fit for them. And then some of the others, you know, telling the story, telling the brand story, communicating your value to your investor base, and then also explaining the important things like the financials, the numbers, the returns, the expectations, et cetera, explaining those very well so that a prospective investor is going to know if it's a good fit and they can do some of the analysis on their own so that by the time you get through everything, it feels great, like a great merger of two parties. So first off, the good signs of a professional capital raising team for a real estate company. First is just being able to even raise the capital. This is a big hurdle for many companies on their own. That's why there's an entire industry of people that are focused on just raising capital. They raise capital, they help these other companies, et cetera, and that's fine. And there's many successful people that are great options, many great companies for that. But if your company can't raise that, then you must identify your deficiency in capital raising. You must be able to make your raises or you're gonna piss a lot of people off on the acquisition side when you can't deliver, burn a lot of bridges with brokers and sellers. Others are being able to raise that money at fair rates, AKA, if you promise a million percent returns, you're gonna have a lot of investors lined up. But if you can't perform on that, or if your cost of money is so high, or make that hurdle with enough of a buffer in case things go wrong, which they inevitably do, then what happens is you are not competitive with your money. You are not competitive with your capital raising enough to bring in enough interest, 
from banks and investors, et cetera, to be able to get that cost of capital down so that you're more competitive in the marketplace. It's also maintaining relationships with your investors, having great updates for them, making sure that when they ask questions, you have the answer or can find it and get it to them, making sure they understand the storyline of what's going on in your fund or syndication or a specific property. And you can convey that to investors to give them the confidence that you know what you're doing and their money is in good hands. Those are kind of like the entry level must haves if you're gonna compare your capital raising to like a benchmark of like good enough. Let's talk about a few of the attributes of great capital raising in house. Keeping key investors warmed up, if you will, meaning they're in the loop on deals and they are ready to invest larger sums so that you have some flexibility in your raises. This is an art more than a science, but it's keeping very close connections with the very, very, very key individuals so that if there's an opportunity and the price goes up or price adjusts, et cetera, they can move quickly. Managing tightly your investor retention is also a level 10 skill for capital raising. If you have very high retention and very high reinvestment rate, you essentially are multiplying your success as a fund and investment group over and over and over and over. Because what happens is your investors are always coming back for more because you are delivering and giving them tons of value. That's huge. In addition, I've heard this breakdown be, you know, the holy grail of the capital raising side. We don't have this exact breakdown, ours looks different, but here's one that I've heard many people say is just the perfect situation. That's 100 high quality, high net worth retail investors that are interested and ready to invest at any time you need them. The second is 10 family offices, high level investing groups, groups that are ready to invest, that invest full time, that want to invest with you, that you have relationships. And the top of the pyramid is one institutional partner that is ready to go. One institutional investor, 10 family office investors, and 100 retail investors, high quality retail investors. And if you have that in place, the saying I've heard kicked around many times is you will never need money again. And some of the bad signs to see from a capital raising group or partner or a department. Can't raise the money, plain and simple, that means they can't deliver. If they can't raise the freaking money, then they are not doing their job and they're not able to put it together. Another one is can't manage different size raises. Okay, this is critical because not every deal is gonna be the standard 5 million, 10 million, 15 million, whatever the purchase price is, it's never to the penny every single deal. It's gonna vary and you as an investment group can't just purchase properties down to the penny every single time. So that means your capital raising department or individual needs to be flexible, needs to have the relationships available to make those varied amounts of raises when needed. Over-promising and under-delivering to get deals done. This is really short-sighted, but I do see this a lot. It's basically promising the moon just to get the money in the door. That's really scary, that's really difficult, and that leads to very short relationships and a lot of pissed off investors. And when I've seen other groups do that, thank God we've never had this issue in-house, but when I've seen other groups do this, it's a very short runway and a lot of problems are at the end. So be very careful if you see somebody with these tendencies to overpromise and underdeliver. Low investor retention rate. Like I said before, retention rate is a very, very, very key metric on the capital raising side. So if you see people not coming back, 
you really need to analyze. There's times it might just be you screwed up your returns, you had really bad communications with investors, it could be many different things, but you always gotta look at the capital raising side too because they really need to be managing the expectations and the communication with investors. In our experience, you know, we went through COVID with investors, right? Can you imagine having the conversation of saying, there's a global pandemic and there's a million things that we don't know, but you can absolutely trust us and we absolutely won't even miss a payment to the investors, right? Takes a lot of confidence and faith from your investor base. Thank God we've maintained that and we paid our investors on time and we paid our way through it and everybody was happy. We did not lose any investors during that time. But there were other groups during the COVID period that didn't have answers and dug a hole and put their head in the sand and buried their head. All that means is they didn't get back to their investors. They didn't tell the story. They didn't tell their game plan. They gave their investors no confidence to reinvest with them. So by the time those funds ended, the investors wanted out. They wanted nothing to do with the guys. They couldn't figure it out and couldn't communicate the problems they were having and what solutions they had lined up for them. Additionally, if the capital raising department or individual needs a significant amount of time where they just need this huge lead time to kind of put everything together, it's unrealistic, frankly. From the acquisition standpoint, there's times deals fall on your desk and you have to make a decision quickly. You have to put the deal together very quickly. So if the capital raising side is so inflexible that they can't do that and they can't work with the acquisition side to get deals done, that's a huge red flag. Now, here's the question, because you can't do everything perfect, right? You can't be the best at every single department in the whole world. So what does a real estate investment group look like if they just outsource this? What are the options to outsource this? The simplest is to just pay a broker dealer. There are individuals that are 100% through extensive licensing that go out and raise money and place money. So you as a fund can contact broker dealers anytime to do this. The money's a little expensive. It can definitely add to fees and definitely dwindle returns, but it is one option that some funds use. If your capital raising isn't lined up overall, Essentially, just like that blood, if you don't have enough blood supply in your company, your business is not gonna be healthy. It is going to flounder. That is why early startup funds are so scary for investors, because investors are smart, and they understand that at the end of the day, something that's just starting up might not have enough to make it. They don't have the momentum, they might not have the systems, and if they don't have the money, they might not have access to the deals or the things that they need to to pay the returns to investors and to offer their investors a world-class experience for their money. Other times you'll see funds pivot a little bit and instead of doing just a straight fund route or a syndication with many investors, they have to take a deal they don't like and they'll move to things like joint ventures. There are many successful joint ventures out there. I have mentors that have scaled to billions under management using JV structures 100% of the time. So that's not to uh, poo-poo that structure, but there's also the time where a JV is sitting there, a joint venture partner sitting there and saying, hey, you got nobody else? Come give me a hug, let's make this work, right? And that's a bad place to be. That means you've run out of options and you're about to get a really bad deal, which is bad for you and your investors. So that's what it looks like when you don't have your capital raising in order and you have to take the bad joint venture deal. So I always advise if you can put it together and you can bring it in house, I mean, it makes the capital cheaper. It makes your company run more efficiently. I typically see it benefit the investor a lot when capital raising is in-house because what it does is it shortens the communication gap between asset management 
and capital raising. So what's going on and what the strategy is and what wins you're having and all these stories you need to tell investors to let them know what's going on. The storyline of what's happening with investments needs to be passed along and relayed to the investors. And when it's all under one roof, I see that very successful and it, I think it instills a lot more confidence in investors in my experience as well. Also when it's in house, I think there's a huge advantage of being able to scale that appropriately with your business growth. And I think you run a huge risk if you're doing a patchwork of capital raising models where it's private placement over here, bank financing over here, institutional, and it's all you know joint venture partially, co-GP, and you have all these pieces going in, I think it gets really complicated. And I think it has the risk of putting the fund in a tough position where they have so many partners and there's so many hands in the cookie jar that it makes it difficult for the fund to run efficiently, which eventually impacts the investor experience, which is really the number one thing to this whole puzzle. So as a recap, an investment fund is an amazing model to bring a lot of value to many people, primarily the investors. There are three major departments and there's a million subsections of this. There are three main pieces to any investment group, syndication, et cetera, et cetera. It's asset management and fund management. Two is acquisitions. And three is capital raising. If you have all three of these on track, you are in a great place to scale appropriately, add a ton of value to the investor. And if you're an investor evaluating a fund or an investment model or a syndication, look for these three. Try and understand how good they are at each piece because that will tell you essentially what your experience with them is going to be. Are you gonna get higher returns? Are you gonna get your calls returned? Are you gonna get on-time reporting that's accurate and quality with good strategy involved of what exactly they're doing? Overall, it takes all three, and understanding them is critical, whether you're on the investor side or the investment side. Thanks, guys. Nick D'Angelo here. If you found value in this today, please subscribe so we can give you more information. If you have any questions, please leave a comment below, and thanks for learning with me today.